Brothers, I think we all would agree that in our current cultural climate that there is a crisis in our day when it comes to manhood, and particularly and especially godly manhood. We're living in a time when godly men seem to be a vanishing species. Rarely do we find Christian men being held up as role models with Christ-like character to emulate, whether it's due to the sinful cultural confusion or the godless media bias. The absence of portraits of godly manhood is palpable. What's most sad, at least in my opinion and my judgment, is that there seems to be just as much confusion in the church about biblical manhood and godly manhood as there is outside of the church. And that's a shame. There's not a week that goes by that I'm not reading about another scandal of a fallen leader or hearing of another abuse case, or learning of another husband abandoning his wife or forsaking his kids, or watching another so-called pastor deconstruct his faith, or hearing and lamenting with another brother who's a pastor decrying the reality that he can't find any man in his church that, who wants to be uh, trained as a leader and serve his body. It's lamentable. And if this problem is true, and I think that it is, I'm trusting that each one of you men are here because you want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. And so we've set before you some of the qualities of godliness for men as found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 with the hope that you men will be motivated and stimulated by God's grace to pursue godliness as measured by God's word. And for this last session, we're going to focus in on one particular quality of godliness, and that is the quality to be sensible. And what I want to do in our time together is set before you, men, if you're taking notes, four headings that should be in your outline. There are four headings to help you grasp the importance of being sensible in your pursuit of godliness so that you can better glorify Christ and serve his church as his men. Thy desire and design here for our time together is for us not just to grow in the knowledge of God's word, but to be able to apply God's word by God's grace and his spirit to our lives that we might be different. Amen. It would be a shame if we come together and we sing these wonderful songs that we hear these godly men preach God's word to us and we leave here with no intention and no inclination of our wills to be any different than when we came. These qualities that are listed before us, we will find that are here, not just for elders, but for all of God's men, for all of us to be striving to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to start, if you guys are taking notes, you can look at your pamphlet there and look with me at the essence of a godly man, the essence of a godly man. You've heard this morning that what Paul does in Titus and 1 Timothy is set before us two lists of non-negotiable qualities for identifying elders in the church. Here in Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9 and then in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. And those men that have these qualities and the calling of God would be elders in the church. These would be men that would be set aside as they are identified of modeling these qualities, and they would be leaders in the church, but they would not only be leaders in the church, but they would also serve as examples and models of what godliness would look like. So when you come across these qualities, you shouldn't just shut your Bibles and say, that's only for pastors. 
That's only for elders. These qualities are for you as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. These men who would be elders that would be examples and model these qualities would be able to say and ought to be able to say the same thing that the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what your elders and your pastors are supposed to do. They are to stand by God's grace and humility and be able to say to you, follow me or imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me in what? In exemplifying and manifesting by God's grace these qualities that are in his life. But before we look at this particular quality of being sensible, what I want to make sure for us this morning is that we would understand that, 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 that this isn't about self-effort, that, that a man can't be godly in any way, shape, or form apart from the work of Christ in his life. You see, it would be very easy for us to be at a conference like this and go away from a conference like this and we'd be all apt up and, 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 and fired up and that should be true and, and think that somehow or another we just could go home and go to our churches and just try harder. Uh, pull up, pull, pull up our boots by the straps and just work harder and just grind it out so we can, so we can just be more godly. If you're thinking that way, you're thinking incorrectly. Because what we need to understand is that godliness is rooted in the work of Christ in the heart of a man that's been encountered by the gospel. This is not a call for you just to somehow or another in your own strength and in your own flesh just to get better and better at being a husband or being a father or learning the word of God or cultivating sensibility in your own life. It's impossible to measure up according to God's word apart from an encounter, a real encounter with the risen Christ. And so I want to just show you what the essence of a godly man is and woven through, even if your Bibles are still open here in Titus uh, chapter, in the book of Titus, is the thread of the gospel. Paul is, is, is encouraging Titus to certainly lead his people in godliness, but Paul wants to be clear that as Titus does that, that the people know that godliness is only possible by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just give you three ways to think about this. If you're taking notes, write this down. First of all, I want you just to see the means of godliness. What's the means of godliness? If it's not our self-effort, then where does it come from? Look right here in chapter 1 at verse 1. Paul introduces this as he opens up the letter itself. He writes there, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the faith of those chosen of God, right? For the comprehensive faith of those that are chosen by God. And notice what he says here. And the knowledge of the truth, which is according to, you said, godliness. You guys understand? He's saying that I am writing for the faith of those chosen by God, those who have come to a saving knowledge of God, and the knowledge of the truth, and the truth is according to godliness. That is to say, there is no godliness apart from the knowledge of this truth. You guys follow me? It's in your Bibles. That the kind of godliness that Paul is talking about, the kind of godliness that you've been hearing about for the last three hours is only possible for those who have come into contact with the truth that produces this kind of godliness in your life. That is to say, apart from the knowledge of this truth, you cannot be godly. You can be moral. There's a great gulf between being moral and being godly. And our aim here. This conference is not to produce moral men. 
Our aim here is to see you men grow in godliness, and that cannot happen apart from the means of God's grace in the knowledge of the truth. Now, you might be asking, what is that truth? I'm glad you asked because Paul tells us. If your Bibles are still open, float with me down to chapter 2. It is the knowledge of the truth that is according to godliness that produces godliness. And Paul tells us in chapter two here in Titus of what that message is. So we move from the means of godliness to the message of godliness. Notice what Paul says in chapter two, verse 11. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And here it is what I want you to focus on. Our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us. Somebody should have said amen, because that's the gospel. That, that, that is the truth that Paul is unfolding for them and holding up that they would believe that would produce comprehensive godliness in their lives. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news about God, our Savior, who is Jesus Christ. That is to say that Paul isn't talking about two people here. The, 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 the language of the text and the grammar of the text is our great God and Savior, one person, Christ Jesus. That Christ Jesus is our great God and our Savior who stepped out of heaven's glory to come down to be incarnated as a man, to live the life that we can never live for ourselves, satisfying the just claims of God's law in thought, word, and in deed, and then dying, giving himself for us on the cross as an atoning sacrifice, bearing the guilt and the shame and the wrath that our sins deserve. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message that Paul wants them to understand that they cannot turn from. They cannot deviate from if they want to grow in godliness. That great God and that great Savior, Jesus Christ, died on that cross and on the third day was raised from the dead in verse 14 to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. The means of godliness is the knowledge of the truth, the message of godliness, is the gospel of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. But then you might be asking yourself, how does this work? What's the mechanism of godliness? How does it work in our lives? Glad you asked the question. Chapter 3, let your eyes drift down there to chapter 3. Look at what Paul writes in verse 4. He says, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, and let the brothers say, Amen. He saved us, but not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. This is how the gospel works. This is the mechanism of the gospel in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. He, according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Brothers, did you get that? That's how the gospel works in our lives. We have been born again by the Spirit of God. We have been washed and cleansed and made new and made whole. We've entered into the new covenant by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been washed and made whole and new. 
We have been clothed with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have, if you have come to the knowledge of the truth, you are now a new creature in Christ. The old man has gone away. The new man has come. The washing of God's power upon our minds and upon our hearts and our minds being renewed by the Holy Spirit. That's the mechanism of how the gospel works in our lives. So everything that you've been hearing this morning, you have to run through that grid. Everything in terms of growing us and, 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 and shepherding the hearts of your wife and shepherding the hearts of your children, growing in the capacity to know God's word. Growing in, in terms of what we'll talk about here and in, in, in being sensible, growing in terms of comprehensive, being uh, beyond reproach. It happens. It can happen. It is possible only by the power of God's grace. And so before I go any further, I just want to ask you this question. Do you know God's grace this morning? I don't want to assume in a crowd this size that every single person here is necessarily a believer. Have you come to the place where you have had an encounter with the risen Christ? Do you know for certain that your sins are forgiven because you've been born again by the Spirit of God? That message that Paul talks about of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us. Do you know that he gave himself for you personally? Have you responded to this good news through repentance and faith, embracing the free offer of forgiveness of sins, receiving eternal life in your own soul, having received the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? If you have not, I invite you to accept him now, to bow the knee of your heart and your mind to the risen Christ, to become a man of God today. You don't have to stand up. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to walk in the aisles. You just have to pray to God. God, confess that you are a sinner. You have broken his law and you have come under the conviction of the spirit of God through the word of God. And you want to be made new. God's word said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call, dear friend, upon the name of the Lord. And the promise of the gospel is you will be saved. And God then will begin the process of making you into a man of God from the inside out. And then if that is the case, you are then called to be godly. You are then called to be sensible. I love the little ditty that uh, Matthew Henry wrote, and this is so good. Just listen. He wrote this, to run and to work the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. That's what the gospel does. And it bids us to fly and be sensible. So we move then from the essence of godliness to the call to be sensible. The call to be sensible. Your Bibles are still open. Turn back over to Titus chapter 1. I read it at the beginning, and I just want to read it again. You find it in verse 8. In the middle of these qualities of, of elders, 
Paul writes there, but, uh, but hospitable over against the negative things that we are to not be, that is not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but positively we are to be hospitable, loving what is good. And here it is, sensible. Some of your versions may translate that self-control, or some versions may translate that prudent, but it's sensible. It's not a word that we use a whole lot. How many of you guys have heard that word in your general vernacular very lately? Not a whole lot. We don't, we just don't use sensible very often. And this is just one of those words that's interesting enough that when you read that, you just pass by it. You just pass by it, but you shouldn't pass by it because it's super important. What's fascinating about this is, is that the apostle Paul uses this word three different times over in chapter two when he begins to deal with the different categories of the members of the church. And I want to just point this out to you. So look in chapter two. So it's not just the elders. In chapter 1, verse 8, who are called to be sensible. But in chapter 2, Paul writes this in verse 1, but as for you, speaking to Titus, who gives oversight to the churches there on Crete, he says, speaks the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And here it is. This is what Titus is to encourage the different individuals in the church to do and to be. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, and you say it, sensible. So the older men, that's not elders, As leaders, that's just older men are to be sensible. Drop down to verse three. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children and to be Sensibles, you guys get that right? So the older women are to teach the younger women how to be sensible. Now, here's the thing, right? An older woman can't teach a younger woman to be sensible if she's not first herself what? So older men are supposed to be sensible. Older women are supposed to be sensible. And young women are supposed to be sensible. Then if you drop down to verse 5, or or verse 5, let me keep reading there, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Then he says this in verse 6, likewise, urge the young men to be, you say it. So who in the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be sensible? Everybody. Right? As they say, everybody. everybody. Right? If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are called to be Sensible. Sensible. It is, it is essential to the church, to men and women and boys and girls who make a claim of godliness to cultivate and develop the virtue of sensibility in their lives. Now, the question then is, what does it mean to be sensible? Let me just try to tease this out for us. The word itself simply means to be sound of mind. It means to be prudent. It means to be sound in judgment and discerning. It has the idea of self-discipline and self-control, right? So it stems from the mind as to how we think and the idea of how we think, then regulating how we act. To be sensible is when the mind chooses to think God's thoughts after him rather than give into one's own sinful appetites and passions. It is self-mastery of the body based on gospel mastery of the mind. And one dictionary calls it habitual inner self-government. You guys get the idea that it's how we think. That It's the opposite, quite frankly, of being a fool. It's the opposite of being a moron is the idea. 
It's not just common sense, but it's, it's sense put into the mind by God's grace and God's word that produces then within you wisdom. And in the, in the biblical notion, wisdom is skill in living. That's the idea. So it's having sense, but not worldly sense or common sense, but God kind of sense that regulates not only how we think, but how we speak and how we act is the idea. And the fact, brothers, that Paul uses the word repeatedly shows just what a real need this quality was amongst God's people in Crete. And the implication then is, if we're thinking correctly, is is that there was such a, a paucity and a lack of sensibility among the Cretans. And I want to just bear this out for us in the text itself. Paul says this, and it, it almost seems so harsh, but if your Bibles are still open in chapter 1, in verse 10, Paul says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that should not they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. He's not trying to win, uh, win supporters and make friends, is he? Right. He's quoting one of their own prophets and saying, this is the testimony of of the Cretan people, that the Cretan people are characterized as as chronic liars, as as lazy individuals, gluttons and evil beasts. In other words, they lack sense. Do you understand? In fact, it was so bad that, 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 that there was a moral insult to say that you were a Cretan. They used to say it today, right? Cretan. That, that, that's not a compliment, right? To, to, to be Cretanous is to be a lazy, shiftless, no good bum. And Paul says then that, listen, brothers and sisters, this is the environment in which we have been saved out of. And this is the environment in which you're going to live the gospel in. And so you cannot be like what you used to be. That the gospel has come into your life and has radically changed you where you used to have no sense. Now you have sense because the spirit of God is at work in your life. That's a message for us today. Amen. The, 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 the Cretans are, are not too far away from the Americans. Come on, y'all. Right. I, 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 I'm keeping it broad because I don't want to get any trouble to make it just ethnic kind of things. Right. But if we look at and survey just the, the, the general landscape of our day, right, folks are walking around with no sense. We're actually having a debate as to what a woman is and what a man is. And that's not a political statement. That's just it's just like that. That's nonsense. And people with PhDs, people in high places making policy, making decisions about how to educate our children, running not only the media, but running education institutions are actually debating. We don't understand what a man and what a woman is. It's nonsense. And God has called us to live out our faith in that milieu and to be able to stand on the word of God and act like we actually have sense. Maybe it might be helpful just to, to, to look at the opposite for a moment. So I invite you just to keep your finger here in Titus and to look with me at Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. Many of you know the, the passage. I won't survey all of the details. It's, it's a demoniac that Jesus encounters. Mark chapter 5. Let me read the first five verses. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. 
And when he got out of the boat, that is Jesus, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him and he had his dwelling among the tombs and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces and no one was strong enough even to subdue him. And constantly, day and night, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. But God, somebody say amen. Amen. This man had an encounter with Jesus. And I'm going to pass through just you guys read it on on your own for homework. But then in verse 5, it says, verse 15, it says this, They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, notice his clothed, come on, y'all, and in his right mind. That's our word. Sometimes we say that clothing is right mind. It's not what it says. It's clothed and in his right mind and in his senses. Why? Because he had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Y'all with me here, right? And if you read verses one through five, that's not too dissimilar for men walking around in our culture today. Amen. I'm not suggesting that every single man that you see out there is demon possessed, right? But they're walking around as if they have no sense. And the only hope, brothers, is an encounter with the risen Christ. Have we had that encounter? It's what Christ does in us to bring us back to where he would have control of our minds. To put sense into our minds as young men or old men, single or married, is the calling that Christ makes upon all of our lives. Brothers, we are called to have our minds renewed by the word of God, to submit our thinking to the grace of God and the gospel of Christ and the word of God. And let me just give us a couple of things or a few things here on how to cultivate that in our lives. Your Bibles are still open with me, and I'll do this fast. I won't expand on these. Look at Romans chapter 12 with me for a moment. Romans chapter 12. How do we cultivate this in our lives, this, this sensibility? First of all, you got to kind of know where you are, right? You, you can't move forward if you don't know where you are. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. He says, For the grace given me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to, but to think so as to have sound judgment. That's our word. Sound judgment as God has allotted to each man a measure of faith. In other words, it starts here. You just need to figure out where you are. How much sense do you actually have? And if you can't discern that on your own, just ask your wife. Ask your children. Ask the men in your small group. Ask the men around you, right? Just, just say, hey, hey. And, and this, is, this takes humility, brothers, right? Just to, just to set yourself bare before the men in your life that know that you know they love you and they have their best, your best interests at heart. And just ask about there are areas in my thinking, there are areas in my decision making, there are areas in my choosing that I just need to grow in. You, 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 you can't set a goal to go somewhere if you first don't know where you are. And quite frankly, I suspect that some of us are just afraid to ask that question and have that conversation. You got to first determine where you are so you can see what your need is to grow. Then, when you do that, the second thing is you got to put yourself under the word of God. 
So if you back up even here in Romans chapter 12, where Paul says, and do not, and this is verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Mind. What is the instrument that Paul implies here that is going to renew your mind? It's the word of God. Brothers, are you sitting regularly under the preaching and teaching of the word of God? How much time do you actually spend reading your Bibles or listening to your Bibles? Now, there's tomorrow's a big day. All right. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> tomorrow's a huge day. Come on, y'all. Big day. Right. Been on your calendars. Right. Some of you guys thinking about it right now. Can't wait till tomorrow come, right? I'm talking about Sunday school. <laughs> Y'all thought I was talking about the football games, right? I say that in tongue in cheek. How many of you guys are as excited about going to church, sitting under the word of God, as you are about watching the football game with your buddies? You should be. How many of you guys make the effort to get up to go to sit under the teaching of God's word? Come on, y'all. Let's be real, right? Ah, not Sunday school, not equipping our, because that's for the kids. That's for the ladies. I'll go to church and maybe, right? If you want to grow in having your mind expanded in terms of being sensible, it cannot happen apart from a regular, constant diet of the word of God. What are you doing? Let me just ask this question. What are you going to change? Let's think about it right now. What are you going to change as a result of hearing this preaching and teaching today when it comes to your relationship with the word of God? What are you going to change? Are you just going to leave here and just be the same thing? Well, you know, I'll come back next year. Brothers, that's not enough. We're supposed to be constantly being nourished on the words of the faith. A sober assessment of yourself, time and the word, and then thirdly, a commitment to prayer. A commitment to prayer. You won't grow in being sensible if you don't pray. It just simply won't happen. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, you guys don't have to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. He says this, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober for the purpose of prayer. Right? Have a sensible mind in your praying. And going to God regularly, asking God to fill your mind, to cleanse your mind of foolishness, to clear your mind of, of worldliness and godlessness in terms of how you think and asking God just to renew your mind through his word over and over again and again. Being in the presence of the one who is ultimately sensible, namely Christ, leaving from there, having gleaned from his mind as you commune with him in prayer. And if we do this, brothers, we're guaranteed to grow in sensibility. Now, what I want to do now is I want to give us three particular areas that I see in my judgment. There are, there are a whole host of areas that we need to be growing in, in, in sensibility, but I want to just three areas that I think need special attention. And this, this is for all of us, whether married or single or young or old. These are three areas that, that I think are, are key to us as men to grow if we really want to be sensible and godly men. Number one is bodily appetites. Number one, bodily appetites. Man, it got quiet. Amen? And what I mean by this is everything pertaining to the impulses of the physical body. Everything from sexual appetites 
to food appetites, everything that can enslave you. See, because out of control starts in the mind. It's not just an act of the will. It starts with how we think. You understand that your choices flow from how you think. So if we're not sensible, we'll give ourselves to our bodily appetites and passions. Everything from excessive leisure to chronic laziness to greedy gluttony to sinful sexuality. These are areas that we need to be thinking God's thoughts after him. Turn with me if your Bibles are still open to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I won't spend a whole lot of time there because my, my dear brother, Dr. Montoya, walked us through here. But I just want to point this out, what Paul does. In verse 24, Paul says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises what? Self-control. In all things, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. Therefore, Paul says, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I do what to my body, brothers? Discipline. Literally, I bruise my body. I give my body a black eye is the idea, and I make it a slave so that after having preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. That's an issue, brothers, of being sensible. Of really taking to heart how we think about our bodies. It's an interesting thing. How many brothers just fall when it comes to Bodily appetites, pornography and immorality are wreaking havoc in men's lives. Marriages are being destroyed. Families are being devastated. Men's souls are shriveling because they're drowning in sexual sin. Proverbs 22.3 says this, the prudent or the sensible sees the evil and hides himself, but the simple-minded goes on and are punished for it. How are we thinking about these areas in our lives, men? What are we feeding into our minds? You can put it this way. Our our minds are like the hard drive on the computer, right? Garbage in, garbage. God's word in, godliness in, then what out? Yes. Yeah, you you gotta stay away from the bowl of ice cream late at night. Everybody 40 and under have no idea what I'm talking about. And everybody 40 and older said, amen, Pastor Kid. Y'all with me? Right? Bowl of Cheerios. Now, forget Cheerios. Captain Crunch. It's our minds, brothers. It's our minds. need to be sensible in the area of our bodily appetites. Number two, we need to also be sensible when it comes to decision making. Decision-making. I realize that part of growing is making mistakes and then learning from the mistakes that we make, right? You can't grow otherwise. But some mistakes that men are making are simply due to the lack of being sensible and not listening to God's wisdom, either from God's word or from godly people in your life. Proverbs 12, 15 says this, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to, come on, counsel, right? I can't tell you how many times, this is not to pat myself on the back, I can't tell you how many times our elders have sat in front of a guy and said, hey man, don't marry her. 
Like, I, I'm just saying, I'm not God, I'm not the Holy Spirit, but don't, I just, it, I, I just don't. But, 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 I'm just telling you, just, uh, just don't. And I don't need to talk about the results. It's a fool who doesn't listen to wise counsel. It gives evidence of a lack of sense not to listen to godly advice. Rehoboam knew something about that, didn't he? First Kings 12, we won't turn there, right? Everybody know who Rehoboam is? Solomon's boy. Got a chance to lead the kingdom, right? Goes to the elders, his father's elders, his father's give, father's elders does what? Give him godly counsel, right? Like, okay, all right, right? And then he gets on his phone, right? And he texts his boys. Hey, y'all, come over, man. Like I guess I want to run something by y'all, right? And they come by, they tell him like, man, just, you know what? Your, your, your father was soft, right? You be hard. And who did he listen to? Listen to his friends, listen to his boys. No slant on you guys and your boys, right? But he didn't listen to sensible men giving him counsel. He listened to foolish advice, and as a result of that, the kingdom split. Don't be a Rehoboam. Don't be a Rehoboam, brothers, and don't be a Nabal. Time doesn't permit me, some of you guys are Nabal. Just go read 1 Samuel chapter 25 when you get a chance. Right. David's men been taking care of Nabal's shears and his men for, for, for months. David needs a favor. David needs some water. David needs some food. David needs some bread. Sends his servants there to talk to his service. And Nabal's like, who is the son of Jesse that I would listen to him? And if you guys just read the rest of the text, the news gets back to David. David's like, all right. Right. <laughs> y'all go get your guns. Well, not guns, but right? you read the text, right? And Nabal's wife praised the Lord for every Abigail. Yes? How many of y'all married to Abigail? Okay, like, y'all not feeling me. How many of you have a Abigail? Better get your hand up, amen? (laughs) This is what she said. This is what she said to David. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man. Talking about her husband, <laughs> Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. And in case you didn't know, Nabal is the Hebrew word for fool. He was a fool. And he proved that he was a fool. He proved that he lacked sense by not listening to sound reason from David's servants. But Abigail, on the other hand, is the one who had sense. Don't be a Rehoboam and don't be a Nabal. And then it is the virtue of being sensible, fueled by the Spirit of God that will enable you to restrain impulse and impetuous decisions which lead to devastating consequences to you and those around you. Bodily appetites. Decision-making, and this is the third one. I'm almost done. We'll wrap it up. Time usage. Time usage. And maybe I just have these three because these are things that God is still working on in my life. Time uses. Brothers, how much time do we waste? How much time do you waste? Just be honest, right? Watching TV, right? On your phone, playing around with social media, watching sports, 
leisure time, meandering around, achieving very little for the kingdom of God. And that's exactly the ploy of the enemy. The enemy doesn't mind you being busy. The enemy just wants you busy doing all of the wrong things that keep you around from working for Christ. And we just have to be honest with ourselves, you guys. Here's a wonderful exercise. Just do it, you guys. Do it this week. Just start on Monday and go all the way to Sunday and track how much, uh, track the way that you use your time, right? Take out work for those of you that work and just track how much you use your time doing other things (coughs) than in the word of God, than in prayer, than time with your wife, than time with fellowship, and time with your family, time with your kids, and just see how much time is being wasted. Ephesians 5.15 says this, (coughs) Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are what? The days are evil, right? So be wise. Make the most of your time. Colossians 4, 4, 5 says this, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. And so the sensible man ought to say this to the Lord. Teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. Lord, teach me how to number how many days that I have left, right? So that I might present to you a heart of wisdom, a heart of sensibility, right? A heart that is fueled by the grace of God, thinking God's thoughts after him so that I might redeem every moment. Thank you, brother. Every moment that God gives to me. And if we would do that, brothers, we will glorify the Lord. Now, quickly, as you've heard this, I want to I want to just mention three excuses to avoid in pursuing to be sensible. This is three excuses that we have to be done away with. I won't expand on them. I'll just give them to you. you know, it's, I call them victimhood. First of all, it's genetic victimhood, because you might be hearing this. We said, OK, Pastor Kid, I, I see what it says. But but you know what? My psychological profile I inherited from my parents prevent me from being sensible. In other words, to break that down, you know, I, I'm just not wired that way. Right? I'm just not like that, right? And you can even put it on your culture. Well, you know, we, we, you know how we roll. We just don't roll right there, right? Now, when you say things like that, you're acting as though you have not had an encounter with the risen Christ. Because if you had an encounter with the risen Christ, you are a new creature in Christ, right? You're no longer bound and or enslaved to that which is genetic, So be done with the genetic victimhood. Be done with the emotional victimhood, right? You're not not entrenched in some kind of emotional profile that you're just stuck in, that you can't get past. The heart and the home and the the trauma. I'm not trying to minimize difficulties of your days that you've gone through, you guys. But but sometimes men just say, well, I just, this is, you know, I can't get past it. Yes, you can. By God's grace, brother. By counsel from God's word. By being under the authority of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Be done with genetic victimhood. Be done with emotional victimhood. Be done with circumstantial victimhood. All right? Just pastor, you don't know what I'm going through right now. And my circumstances are so bad. Right? I came from this kind of environment. I'm, I'm in this kind of environment. This different. Brothers, who is the Lord Jesus Christ? if not king and Lord and sovereign over all of our circumstances. Amen? Amen. And in fact, the one who promised to work together for our good, all of our circumstances. So be done, brothers. Be done. Let me close this way. Just turn back to Titus. 
And I, I want to encourage you, men, that you can grow in being sensible and being wise and being prudent and being self-controlled, exercising self-restraint to the glory of God. Because this is, in fact, what the gospel does in our lives. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 again. You probably picked it up when I read it. Paul writes this. Mark it down. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The grace of God, Paul is personifying here, that it actually appeared. That Jesus is the grace of God incarnate. And he has brought salvation to all men. And then he puts on the, the hat of a teacher. He's a savior, but Jesus Christ is also a teacher, this grace of God. Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And here it is, and to live, you say it, sensibly is a word. That's our word. You guys see it? That's what the grace of God does. The grace of God is teaching you daily, daily, daily to live a sensible life. The question is whether or not you're being a learner. The question is whether or not you're being a student. The question is whether or not you are listening to what the grace of God in Christ is teaching each and every one of us on how to think God's thoughts after him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your mercy and for your grace. We thank you for Christ who appeared and brought salvation to us and who is now instructing us to live sensibly in this present age. Help us, dear God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to grow in being sensible. That our minds would be captivated by the word of God. That it would be evident in our lives that we have spent time with you and that we would reflect the character and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That we would exercise by right thinking, right behavior for your glory and for your honor, that we, as men of godliness, might magnify your glory and your grace. We love you, Lord, and we need you, Lord. Bless us is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you, man.